Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Asha Shahjahan. And I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin. Our goal is to help you and your families live smarter and healthier lives. Today's topic is the long-awaited mailbag. Ooh, the mailbag episode. Before we jump into the questions, I guess this is a good opportunity. Asha, you've done a few of these now. I've done a few of these. We've been apart from each other now for quite some time. Too long. How's it been going for you? It's been going great. You know, I really enjoy talking to all of our guests, and I feel like every time we do a podcast, I learn something new. Um, And I feel like in general, I've been thinking more about the topics that we talk about and how it relates to my patients in the clinic. I mean, what what, what do you think? How's it been for you? I think it's been really useful. I, I Personally, I think this has really exceeded my expectations in, as far as, you know, really having an engaging conversation with a guest, creating some really meaningful content for mm-hmm. people, really of all levels of knowledge. I've had people stop me and, you know, physicians have come up to me and said, you know, that was a really great podcast you did on Lyme disease. And I've had people without the medical knowledge come to me and say, you know, that was a really great episode that was on bullying it. Yeah. And I just think that that's great to hear, especially when you're trying to capture all ends of the spectrum. Right. I I feel like it's really funny because I'll tell my friends, oh, I just did a podcast on that topic. Listen to it, you know, (laughs) or or if I'm out in the community, I'll say, well, you know, what? if you want more information on that, we've got this podcast. So I find it very helpful and useful. It has been really fun. And we've done, I think, now about 17 episodes and uh, no end in sight. Hopefully we're going to keep pushing through more and more episodes. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the content that we're thinking about in the in the months to come. But I'm really excited because this is us two together. For sure. <laughs> so before, before we jump into the questions, I think we can kind of file these questions into um, a, a group of maybe three major topics. So first of all, there's one question that we're going to get to, which is a, an interesting one, and it talks about headaches. Mm-hmm. And this is something that we've had some people reach out to us to say, you know, talk a little bit about headaches. Because headaches... It's a big topic. I think that this is something we're going to have to tackle most likely in, in its own podcast. Yeah, definitely. Um, but we'll definitely spend a little bit of time today talking about headaches. We also have um, some questions about sort of navigating the healthcare landscape, which sounds like a really exciting, fun thing. But the reality is, I think this has to do with some of the logistics of things that patients should be asking their doctors or what their expectations should be when they go to the doctor for a regular appointment. So that's going to be one uh, or a couple of questions that will kind of... We've got some nice tips for that and how to do that. Yep, encompass that. And then there was a very interesting question I know you're going to talk a little bit more about, which is a question about music therapy. Yes, my favorite topic. And that's something I'm really interested to learn about too. So I guess with that, we're going to jump into the mailbag. So let me take the first rip at this question here. Okay. So... I'll read the question and then you can kind of, you know, go into what the best answer is and we can kind of sort of share ideas and, and we'll go from there. Sure. First Reach question. Into that mailbag. First question. What are some possible reasons behind persistent headaches? Ooh, okay. So headaches. There's so many different types of headaches. And to categorize all of them would probably take a really long time. Like you said, we could do a whole different podcast on headaches. But in general, headaches can happen um, if you have a disorder of your neck, of the eyes, the brain, your jaw, or your teeth. Those are just sort of more like incidental headaches. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about persistent headaches, everyone always thinks of migraines. But I think the issue is, is that everyone calls a headache a migraine, you know, and there are different types of headaches. Migraine is a, is a specific category. There's also cluster headaches. And there's also tension headaches. Those are the three most common headaches. 
Um, and then they have some life-threatening headaches, which we can we can kind of talk about what are some of the signs, the red flags of, of what those would be. Can you talk a little bit about those three different types of headaches? You said migraines, tension headaches, and cluster headaches. What, what are the distinguishing features of those types of headaches? Yep. So migraine headaches usually occur with an aura. So what that means is you know it's coming on. Like either you start um, having a certain smell or you might feel nauseated. Um, you have sensitivity to light. Um, usually dark rooms help you feel better. Noise sensitivity; those all go along with migraines, um, and they they can happen unilaterally, which is on one side of the head, or they mm-hmm. can happen bilaterally as well. Um, and a lot of times, people who have migraines it's it's not always, but can be hereditary, such as my mom had migraines, then I get migraines, um, and migraine headaches are pretty severe, so um, they're a little bit more difficult to break um, from just with just regular um, over the counter kind of things. And so, a lot of times, when you have a migraine headache, you might consider seeing a neurologist to get some prophylactic uh, medication and things that can help you avoid getting migraine headaches. Now, tension headaches are slightly different. Um, they're usually bilateral headaches, so it occurs on both sides of the head, and they're they're stress induced. Um, And they usually come on gradually, and they're not as severe as migraines. So a lot of times uh, over-the-counter analgesics like uh, Tylenol or Motrin uh, would be be helpful to take care of the tension headaches. And reducing your stress kind of helps with those tension headaches. A tension headache is kind of the prototypical headache, right? That's the one that's the most frequently occurring headache. When someone says uh, they're having a headache, that's probably a tension headache that they're describing. Is yeah, that- when your kids are yelling and screaming and your head starts hurting, that's a tension, a tension headache. headache. <laughs> you know, or if you're stressed at work and things are going, you know, you're just having one of those bad days and your head slowly, gradually starts hurting, most likely those are tension headaches. Yep. And then the other headache that uh, I mentioned are cluster headaches. And cluster headaches are usually different in the sense that they can last for weeks or months and then not occur again for, for almost a year or more. And they're usually on one side of the head, so it's a unilateral headache, and they usually occur um, with some eye involvement, so you feel pressure behind the eyes. Not to be confused with the sinus headache, though, because a lot of times if your sinuses are, um, are acting up, you feel pressure around your face, your forehead, and underneath the eyes. This is more like you feel pressure behind the eyes, um, and you can get swelling of the eyelid and that sort of thing. And, and cluster headaches um, are classic for that unilateral, um, can last a whole week, and then sort of disappear. I cheated a little bit and did some uh, some prep on headaches before because I knew that this question was going to come up. I also read that cluster headaches can be really explosive. So this yeah. is one of the couple of different headaches. This and, and migraines, I think, are the two types of headaches that will typically or may send a person to the emergency room. Yes, absolutely. They're pretty severe in, in, in pain. Um, and then there's always like the medical school question of the worst headache of your life, yep. um, which is a headache that gets worse and worse and worse over time as opposed to better. Um, and then, of course, those are always considered important to go uh, to the emergency room because you could have um, like a bleed in your head or something like that. Um, but some, speaking all about that, why don't we talk about what are some warning signs that would make you go to the ER, right? Sure. Um, so some warning signs are like if you have vomiting but no nausea. Um, or if you have a sudden onset of pain, so it's not gradual, it's like all of a sudden you have this really strong headache and you, you think it's the worst headache that you've ever had. And it, like I mentioned before, it starts getting worse and worse as opposed to better. Um, changes in vision, or if you have any weakness of your limbs, that could be a sign that you might be um, having a stroke. So if you have weakness in your arms or legs or difficulty with your speech, um, 
Uh, also, like personality changes. So if you get extremely irritable um, or loss, um, kind of like loss of control, you're a little bit more lethargic than usual and that sort of thing. Um, and even seizures. So if you're having a headache and, and you have a seizure, obviously you'd want to go to the ER. Yep, definitely good to talk about red flag symptoms. I'm hoping I can do a podcast on headaches in the next uh, coming weeks or months, so stay tuned for that. I'm Right now I'm working on vetting some potential guests, and I think it's a really interesting and useful topic. And like I said, a lot of people have asked me about this, so looking forward to talk more about that. Absolutely. Moving right. on. Moving on. Let's see what else we have in this mailbag. Okay, so here's a question that says, how does my health compare to your other patients? Um, and it says, how often do you use other patients as examples when consulting other patients? So I like this question because this is a tactic that I frequently deploy in my practice. So uh, as you know, I'm an infectious disease doctor. Uh, my, pa- my, my largest part of my practice is taking care of patients with HIV. And among my HIV patient population, which is in the east side of the metro Detroit area, the majority of my patients are young, gay, bisexual and transgender men. Mm-hmm. And um, many of them, when they are presenting with a new diagnosis of HIV, they come in really unprepared. Um, a lot of them are showing up fairly late in the game as far as uh, they've sort of let their health go. They may have known that something was wrong, but they didn't really do anything about it, or they may have avoided getting testing because they were afraid of what the results might show. Right. And so when I'm seeing this patient for the first time, there's a lot of concern and there's uh, rightfully so, you know, there's, there's concern about, you know, am I going to die as a frequent question that I get asked. And I've found as I've um, taken care of more and more patients, it's really useful to use this as a teachable experience for these patients to say, first of all, no, you're not going to die. Second of all, this is a treatable condition. And, and third, to sort of reference other patients that have presented to me under similar circumstances and right. talk about some of the success stories. Because I think that really that's valuable for patients to know, to know that this isn't the first time you've seen this before. You know, right. no patient wants to hear, you know, the doctor walk into the room and say, wow, I've never seen this before. <laughs> I haven't seen this since medical school. Oh, this no. is, you know, yeah. So I think it's very reassuring for the patient to hear, you know, that, um, that everything's going to ultimately be okay. And really most of the time it is okay. And, and, and I, so that's something that I find very useful. Of course, I'm respecting patient privacy. I'm not giving away names or personal information, right. but I do find that that's a valuable way to spread information. Success stories are great, um, especially when you think about things like, uh, so in my practice, weight loss. So um, when we talk about different diets, we had a, a podcast on um, various diets, but I'll say, you know, one of my patients tried this and this worked for them. Mm-hmm. Um, or when you talk about surgeries, I think a lot of people are very nervous about going in oh, for yeah. surgeries and they might say, oh, I'm going with this doctor. Like, what do you think? What are the outcomes? And then, you know, you can reference other patients. Yep. Very good um, point. So I think, I mean, I, Obviously, every patient is individual, and we have to look at them from an individualistic lens. But like you said, I think it's great to have some comparison um, so that people can kind of gauge, you know. And then also people like to know, like, for their age, am I uh, the right body mass index or um, how's my cholesterol for my age? So just being able to reference other people in this similar age group or demographic is helpful. Absolutely. Next question. I'll reach into the bag here and pull one out. The next question is, why isn't dietary intake the number one focus of treatment when assisting a patient? 
Okay. Why don't you take a crack at that one? Okay. Whoever wrote this question, I think this is absolutely awesome. And I think it should be uh, part of the focus of treatment. I'm going to be pretty honest as to why I think, this is my personal opinion, Hmm. as to why I think um, it's not happening. Number one, nutrition is surprisingly not a huge focus in medical school. Absolutely. 100% agree. We don't take more than one course on nutrition and all of med- medical schools four years long, right? And then I'm family medicine, so that's uh, more um, general as, as opposed to infectious disease. And in our family medicine training, nutrition is an elective. It's not a mandatory uh, rotation. So the medical knowledge of physicians I think, is very poor when it comes to nutrition. Obviously, some are more specialized in it, some may know. But that's why we usually refer people to a nutritionist who can sort of really focus on that with the patient. Uh, The other thing is, I think, is time restraints. A lot of times we have 15 minutes with the patient, and if you're here for diabetes and we spend the whole 15 minutes talking just about um, diet, we sort of miss some of the other things, such as medication management and those things. Um, so that's sort of that's sort of what I think is the reason why. I am so glad to hear you say that because as I was reading the question, uh, I was thinking, well, I don't answer why I don't deal with this. It's because I don't really know much about nutrition. I mean, I have a very basic, rudimentary understanding of what good nutrition is. Yeah. But this, this is really beyond the scope of what I do on a day-to-day basis, and I think it might... It might surprise people to know that a lot of doctors really don't know much about nutrition. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, we're we're constantly searching out new information. Also, this information tends to change pretty rapidly. Mm-hmm. I have I've found at least that diets change, recommendations for which diets are effective change. One year we're talking about the Mediterranean diet. The next year we're talking about something else. Keto. And right. <laughs> and, and, Intermittent fasting. And it's you know, it's so difficult to stay on top of this. So I was glad to hear you say that. And I echo what you said. I utilize dietitians and uh, experts in nutrition very heavily in my practice. When patients ask me these questions, I am looking for those resources because I quickly get way out ahead of my skis when I start talking about nutrition. Yeah. And you know, the other thing that might be helpful. So if you are like, you know, I really need help with nutrition and my doctor is not uh, is not focusing on it. You don't know how to bring it up. A great thing to do is just bring your label, you know, so bring a food item or a drink and then ask your doctor to go through the label with you. Mm. Cause I think that's a really great way. Mo- I mean, all of us know how to, re- um, physicians know how to read labels and look at macronutrients and, um, you know, what's the recommended amount of sugar you should have a day and that sort of thing. So I think being able to read, making sure you understand how to read labels is a great way to kind of introduce nutrition as a topic that you, that you want to talk about with your doctor. So that's sort of a, maybe a way to introduce that. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's a great idea. I think we should really focus more on nutrition, especially with patients who are struggling with um, obesity and that sort of thing. So great idea. Maybe we can invest in it in the future. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, Let's see. Okay. So I've got another question here. Um, So it says, I heard music therapy um, has been mentioned before, but I wonder what are the actual benefits and who does it help? Good question. So I have uh, I have seen references to music therapy in the treatment of lots of different conditions, including anxiety, uh, chronic pain, dementia, autism spectrum disorders. Um, I have to confess, this is not. I know this is something that you have a particular interest in. So I'm going to turn the question over to you. Um, but but um, but this is definitely something that I think there's 
ample, ample opportunity for us to explore probably in its own podcast at some point if we ever wanted to go down that road. Absolutely. So um, I can tell you from personal experience. So um, my mom, I might have mentioned before, um, she suffers from posterior cortical atrophy, which is an early onset dementia. So she started having trouble with her vision and uh, her memory um, in her uh, late 50s, uh, early 60s. So it was pretty devastating, especially since my mom was an ICU nurse and very capable and independent woman. And so in her um, when she got diagnosed, uh, she eventually had to stop working and take an early retirement because she couldn't drive and see very well, and she got very depressed. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember thinking, what can I do to help her? And at the time, I was a resident, and I was actually rotating in neurology at the time, oddly. And so I kept <laughs> thinking, like, what can I do? What can I do to help her? And uh, my dad and I took her to this concert, uh, and it was an, uh, an Indian artist um, that had come from India at the Fox Theater. So we took her there, and she did not want to go because she said, uh, I'm not going to be able to see. It's going to be dark. And she was very resistant. But when we ended up taking her there, um, she just lit up. Hmm. Like her um, confidence improved. She was singing every lyric to every song. And I was just – my dad and I were amazed. We were like, how does she have – how does she retain the, the memory here? And that sort of got me interested in looking more at um, the research behind music and music therapy versus therapeutic music. So there are two types of, um, when you think about music therapy, music therapy is with an actual clinician. So someone who was trained and went to school for music therapy, and they work one-on-one with patients or in groups with patients on how to um, address a specific problem. Uh, for example, speech um, or um, communication, uh, pain. Whereas therapeutic music is where music is played and you see some benefits. So I'll give you an example. So um, in New York, there was an Alzheimer's center that was a nursing home. And in that center, they were having a lot of issues with sundowning, which is um, a term that's used when patients get agitated, most sore, mostly at night. Yep. And so what they found was they were giving a lot of sedating medications and family members would come in in the morning and get so upset. Like, why is my uh, mother or father or grandparents like not able to communicate with me? Well, we gave them the sedating medication because they got agitated overnight. Oh, yeah. Happens all the time in hospitals, too. Yeah. Yeah, And then the uh, nursing staff also was getting burnt out because Mm -hmm. they constantly were getting these calls of having to, you know, attend the bedside. And so what this um, Alzheimer's Center was uh, Hearthstone uh, Marlboro Center in New York, they ended up um, hiring uh, musicians during dinner time, and they did it on certain days a week. And what they found was that the days of the week that they played music, uh, they had less calls, they had less need for giving sedating medications. It was able to calm the patients down so that the bedtime was no longer a major issue. And the research shows that the reason why music is so important um, with helping with agitation and anxiety is that it actually affects the dopamine levels uh, in the brain. So when you think about antidepressants, that's what antidepressants do. They work on our neurotransmitters. And so music actually has a natural way of doing that. So that's an example of like therapeutic music. A lot of times you'll see it in the hospital too, people playing music by yeah. bedside. Yeah, I have seen that. That's That's always really cool. I think that's something that more places need to really take advantage of if the science says that this is a very positive and and good way to to handle patients with dementia because these patients can be really challenging as you alluded to with you know uh, trying to you know climb out of bed at night and and uh, doing all that crazy stuff it's yeah 
And actually, um, when you look look at the research, um, when you have Alzheimer's, as your brain is atrophying, you start losing different function. Mm. But music, uh, they've they've had MRI studies done that show what happens to people's brain uh, when they're listening to music or actively playing music. And it actually lights up the entire brain on scan. So it's one of the last things that you lose um, is your ability to enjoy music. And that's why many people who are even aphasic, like they don't speak at all, if you play music, they'll start singing along. Hmm. Um, and they can remember all the words because it's, it's stored in a different part of the brain. So that's why music can be so powerful for people who have dementia because it, it's part of them that still is retained. Yeah. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, the other thing is music is very helpful for things like chronic pain, like you mentioned. Um, even, even coronary artery disease, there's been studies about um, how music can bring down blood pressure. Uh, there was a study done that when a group of uh, post um, myocardial infarction, heart attack patients uh, did music therapy for, uh, several times a week, they were able to reduce their systolic blood pressure by five, um, by five points. So that's another way that music can help. And uh, one story I want to share with you is about, so music therapy, when you've got a guided person with you, can be very instrumental in helping, especially stroke patients. So uh, there was this famous uh, public speaker who ended up having a massive stroke on the left side of his brain. And so that left him aphasic, so he could not speak. So there goes his profession. He couldn't walk, um, and he had poor motor skills on his left side, so he couldn't use his arms. Um, And the docs basically said, we've tried all the physical therapy we could. The the likelihood of you improving is pretty dismal. Hmm. So what his wife did was invested in getting a music therapist. And she worked with him through playing the piano and singing. And the reason why singing works, so he could not speak, but he could sing, if that makes any sense. Because music and singing is in the right side of the brain. So his left side of the brain was damaged, but because he was able to sing, so she would say, sing, how are you, instead of saying, how are you? And she would play notes to bring him to that level, and he could sing it. So what, was, what she was able to do was retrain the left side of the brain of speech through pitch and octaves, et cetera, um, and get him to speak again. In addition to that, she also used the piano to help him with motor skills. So for some reason, when he was able to hear the music on the piano, he was able to use his hands better. Um, So there's a lot of research with neurology um, and neurological conditions. Hmm. Parkinson's is one of them, too. When music is played, um, it helps a lot with motor function as opposed to just doing traditional physical therapy. And the great news about this story is that um, this gentleman ended up regaining his speech and is back to public speaking, and it was all through uh, music therapy. So, Wow, that's really cool stuff. I, I had no idea that it was used to that capacity, so that's really interesting. Yeah, I could go on and on about music therapy, but maybe I should stop. <laughs> I think we should do a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I got therapy. really excited. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of... Like, art and medicine is one of my most favorite topics because it's something that you can do naturally yourself. So uh, maybe we can talk about that in the future. Let me jump into the next question. Since you spend about five minutes max per patient, I don't know if that's totally true, Hmm. how effective really are office visits? Why shouldn't people be using online services where you can dial in or or virtual medicine um, more than what they're using right now? Kind of two questions baked into one. Okay. So for one, I would definitely say from a primary care standpoint, there are rarely appointments that are five minutes. 
Um, our appointment schedules are 15-minute appointments for acute visits, mm. so meaning like you have a cough or a cold or something very direct that you need to talk to the doctor about. And then you have 20-minute to 30-minute visits for chronic so let, let's say you're coming in for diabetes or you're coming in for a full physical. So you've got 15 minutes and between 20 and 30 minutes in my schedule. Now, it depends on your specialty. So if you're in orthopedics, you might be seeing a patient every five minutes. Um, I don't know about what your office hours are like. Or Yeah, we do 15 and 30, typically 15 for follow-ups and 30 for new patients. Yeah. So... Um, for, so the thing is, is like I, I get a lot of emails from patients, so it's not really a virtual visit, but people say, oh, I've got a headache or I've got this, I've got that. And sometimes it's okay if you know the patient really well, but the problem is, is like virtual visits I think are great if you can see the patient mm. because a lot there's a lot of value in seeing and touching a patient. For example, I had a patient tell me that he was coughing um, for a week and uh, he wanted an antibiotic. And I said, I- I'm going to need to see you because, first of all, I have to listen to your lungs. I have to see, is this a viral versus a bacterial? Are you wheezing? Like, there's so many other factors that are there. So I think that's one disadvantage of some of the virtual visits. But if it's something like a rash and the doctor just needs to see it, um, sometimes it could be helpful to do virtual visits. And I think it just really depends on what you're seeing your physician for. So um, if it's something where the physician needs to actually see you and listen to your heart and lungs and th- that sort of thing, or maybe do a, a procedure like an EKG, then uh, it's important to come in. Yeah. And what are your thoughts? You know, I, I have a couple thoughts here. I believe office visits are still useful. Um, I think that there's another side of this that patients uh, and the listeners should be aware of, and that is the administrative demands that are on physicians, because the world has changed here uh, quite a bit. So physicians who are working full-time can expect to see probably anywhere from 20 to 30 patients in a given day. 30 would be definitely on the high end. 20 is probably a little closer to what you would expect. Yeah, I usually see about 20 patients, yeah. Now, if I work from 9 to 5 with no stop for lunch, because let's be real, a lot of us don't get a chance to stop for lunch. Nope, we don't. um, I'm going to see a patient every 20 minutes. Uh, That's 27 patients in a day. So that's kind of right smack dab in the middle of between 20 and, and 30 patients a day. Now, if I'm a primary care doctor, which I'm not, but let's pretend that I am, that means that I'm helping you manage virtually all your health-related issues. So I'm going to be helping you manage diabetes. I'm going to be helping you manage high blood pressure, chronic pain, cholesterol, health screening recommendations, vaccines, mammograms, colonoscopies. The list goes on and on. There has to be a very coordinated strategy to get through all these issues in a very short time. Otherwise, I'm going to fall behind in my day. So if I spend, if I have you in my office for 15 or 20 minutes, but I spend 30 minutes with you, the next patient's going to be 10 minutes behind, and so on and so on throughout the day. And then factor in that each one of these patients that I see, I, there needs to be appropriate documentation. So this is for two primary reasons. So one, so I can properly be reimbursed for the care that I provide. I need to provide appropriate documentation to the insurance company. And also for the sake of accurate record keeping, I want to make sure that I'm keeping tabs on what happened with you so that any other doctors that are involved in your care know what's going on and so on and so on. And that documentation takes time as well. Oh, yeah, it does. Uh-huh. So, you know, the administrative burden is is not insignificant. So it can feel, I think, to patients sometimes that they're not getting enough time with their doctor. But that's because there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than you probably can appreciate. Now, I think the future of medicine holds a few things. Some of this is already happening. So one thing I think is physicians who provide higher quality care, meaning that they may spend a little bit more time with their patients, but they're providing a higher quality service, 
I think that they're going to be incentivized to not have to see as many patients in a given day. We're already kind of starting to see that to some degree. I expect that that will continue, that trend will continue. Um, another thing is access to virtual medicine or telemedicine. Definitely something that is going to happen more. You mentioned some of the pitfalls of virtual medicine. I do think there's a role for virtual medicine or telemedicine. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like in real time, but you can definitely expect that that's something that's going to grow. And a third thing is increasing transparency in medicine. So that means you, the patient, when you go to see your doctor, you have access to your health records, you have access to your labs, you have access to all those things. So with that information in hand, I think you're coming to your appointment more sort of armed with questions that you can sort of make the the most of your 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 minutes or however long you have with the physician and make the, the best out of that office visit. We totally understand that as patients, you're juggling so many different things, multiple doctor's appointments. Um, you're, you're getting off work just to try to make it in, and it seems inconvenient to come and wait in a waiting room, and you only see the doctor for such a short amount of time. And so I think in that sense, um, the, as you were mentioning, Nick, like the new wave of technology is being able to have virtual visits so that you can see a doctor from your home or you can see a doctor from uh, the office and, and not have to have it be such an inconvenience um, on your time. Ultimately, we want to make it more convenient for patients to partner with their doctors. We don't want to make it more difficult for patients to see their physicians. So that's why I think healthcare is seeing a trend in this direction. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, the time constraints are, are difficult, and hopefully, um, with the with some changes in, in the healthcare model and legislation, we can we can change that overall to being able to spend more time with our patients. So value based care is is what we what we strive for. Yep, I agree. This is our last question that we have time for today. And it says, what is the worst thing I'm doing for my health in my 30s? Alcohol, caffeine, not enough sleep, or a lack of exercise. What would definitely improve my health if I stopped or started doing more of? Good question. So I think you can you can Google this question and you'll probably get top 10 lists from all across the web and everybody's going to have a different opinion of what that thing is. Yeah. I'm going to give you my opinion. So I think in no particular order, I can think of four things that I would highlight right now um, that are sort of a combination of things you should stop doing or things that you should start doing. And then you can kind of share with me your thoughts. So number one, smoking, statistically speaking, is probably the worst thing you could do at any age. I think the, the science has spoken pretty clearly on this. The, the cardiovascular risk is astronomical. The cancer risk, risk is astronomical. I think knowing what we know today, starting smoking would probably be the worst thing you could do. Right. Continuing smoking would probably be the worst thing that you could do. Number two, I would say not exercising or generally being sedentary would be a close second in my book. Um, Number three, probably a little underreported, but I think getting a little more traction, texting while driving. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Texting while driving certainly belongs in my list. It's probably more of a pet peeve than anything else, but... No, um, it's a a hazard, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then the last thing I would highlight here, um, and this is is relevant to a, a podcast that I listened to recently, and it talks about being a part of a community. So 
engaging in regular positive social interactions with real people, not just through social media, is an unbelievably important thing in terms of emotional and psychological well-being. It needs to be real, tangible, physical interaction, a physical community. Uh, that really seems to be the most beneficial. And the podcast that I listened to um, interviewed a, a guest by the name of Johan Hari, uh-huh. who recently wrote a book called um, Lost Connections, I think. And I haven't read the book yet, but I'm really interested in reading this book. And it talks exactly about that, about using connection and community as a way to battle things like depression and addiction. And I just think that that's a really fascinating topic. Yeah, that's kind of like our loneliness uh, podcast talked a lot about that. So those are great. So what are your thoughts? You know, it's interesting because I was looking at this question and I thought, okay, what's more important, food or water, (laughs) right? You can't live without food. You can't live without water. I mean, you might live a little bit longer with just water. But right. so when I'm looking at the things that the, this person listed, alcohol, caffeine, not enough sleep, lack of exercise, well, all of them, I think, are kind of important. And it's difficult to sort of say one is better than the other, in my opinion. But it also depends on the person and their habits. So like if you're drinking all the time, like five drinks a day, well, then, yeah, cutting down on drinking would be a good, a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think of all of the ones that was listed, alcohol, caffeine, sleep, or lack of exercise, I think sleep is number one. And I think it's often um, neglected. And the reason I say that is because sleep is so foundational, right? It, it's how you get your immune function. It's how your mood is set, your energy levels, even your appetite and memory is restored in sleep. So I would, I would say on my list, sleep would be number one. And it's something a lot of us don't get enough of. We kind of pride ourselves, oh, I can get by on five hours of sleep or I can get by, <laughs> you know, but eventually it's going to catch up with you. And, you know, I, I have like a a soft spot for Alzheimer's, and I talk about it quite a bit. But the reason I say that is that there's a large body of evidence that talks about not getting enough sleep and having it being an increased risk for getting Alzheimer's disease. And there's a lot of observational studies that talk about um, people who have sleep problems end up having more cognitive impairment and issues with memory. Um, So to me, of all of those, let's say you you don't do any of these in, in excess, I would say sleep is really important. The rest of them, I think it depends on your lifestyle. So if you're very sedentary, then yeah, you, you need to exercise. Or if you drink a lot of caffeine, then maybe cut down the caffeine. Um, but if you do everything in moderation of the four that was listed, I would say sleep. Good to know. I always learn something when I talk to you, Asha. Oh my gosh, same thing here, Nick. Nice. This, we, should, we should just do this more often. Nice getting together. Before we totally wrap this up, I want to talk about a couple things. First of all, I want to give some love to the people behind the scenes who kind of help put this together and make this happen. Um, got to talk about our producers and, and our support staff. We've got Scott Kemp. We've got uh, Paul Bonner. we got Pam Saunders, Joe Weselek, uh, and Rob Kobolash, to name a few. All really good, really helpful. And they are amazing. They are the foundation of all of this absolutely. podcast. None of this exists without them, so big yeah. thanks to them. Also want to talk for just a second about some of our future episodes that we may have in the pipeline. Um, I mentioned already that we're going to talk about headaches in the very near future. Um, we've got a couple episodes in the pipeline. We've got a, a conversation I'd like to have about vaping, mm-hmm. um, something that's sort of trendy right now, and talk about you know the, the, the bad and the dangers and so, so on associated with vaping. I also have a few other ideas for some future podcasts um, as it pertains to um, uh, to diet and, and to well-being, sort of vague topics, but I think we can get a little bit more specific with that. So look for some future podcasts that focus on those topics as well. What do you got planned? Um, well, I think it would be nice to talk a little bit about art and healing like we sort of mentioned. And then also um, we have some topics about... 
um, getting unstuck and what that means. Um, in addition to unmentionables. So that's talking about you know, pelvic pain, um, euro issues, issues that we just don't like to talk about. Mm-hmm. And then also sex therapy. Um, what's going on um, behind the closed doors that no one really um, feels comfortable talking about as well? So those are a couple of topics that um, we have coming up. So I think those will be pretty interesting. And then, oh, one more, um, talking about workplace burnout. Um, it's such a big issue, I know, with physicians, but just in general, I mean, a lot of us, we're working really hard. Um, and now with the internet, it's, we're working, we're on all the time. Oh, yeah. So it's like, how do we turn, dial it down um, and manage our, our uh, work stress? Very cool. Asha, thank you for your time. Thank you, Nick. It's always a pleasure. And before we leave, I want to remind you to share any questions you might have with our email address, which is podcast at beaumont.org. Dr. Shah Jahan and I will be fielding your questions very soon. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.